0: But I'm sitting here today with Deborah Larson, and today's date is February 17th, 2017. I had to think about that Mm -hmm. Friday. So, Deb, I'd like to thank you again for meeting with us. My pleasure, yeah. So, the first question I like to ask everybody is why did you become a PT?
1: I don't think I'm that different from many uh, that started out. I read a book called Christy when I was early high school. And it was about a PT working with a young girl with cerebral palsy. And I thought, oh, that seems very interesting. I'd done some time as a candy striper. Uh, me too. <laughs> and uh, I decided I didn't, I didn't want to be a nurse because I don't like needles or tubes and where they go. So um, those two things together made me start uh, thinking about an alternate healthcare path. And I volunteered at the Children's Hospital in Dayton and mm-hmm. fell in love with that. I volunteered at um, one of the acute care hospitals as well. I never liked that quite as much as I liked the children's hospital. So surprisingly, I went to PT to be a pediatric PT.
0: So was that your first job?
1: No, someone gave me uh, (laughs) ill-advised advice. somebody told me that you had to take your first job in a general practice setting preferably acute care and i did that i lasted 11 months i applied for and talked my way into a job where i was the sole pediatric therapist in a large hospital in toledo and um it was just an amazing learning situation i um this was 1979 and Mm -hmm. i was in the NICU and i was doing rehab and i was doing a cerebral palsy clinic and a myelomeningocele clinic and um, just so many different opportunities to learn and expand my skills.
0: So how did, you, how did you learn those things? Were those taught in your program or did you have to discover or collaborate?
1: I did uh, take some elective coursework as um, a physical therapy student in pediatrics. I specifically did two clinical experiences in pediatrics mm-hmm. And then while I was uh, in this new job, I got a master's degree in child development. I felt like I understood when children should roll and sit and walk and those kinds of things, but I had no concept of when they should talk and how they should be able to play and what cognitive abilities they should have when. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think we even today spend as much time on those other aspects of development um, for in our educational process. And I think they're critical for you to do a good job as a pediatric therapist.
0: Well, not just peace. didn't you do a research study on dual tasking, motor and cognitive?
1: So I have come sort of full circle in that because Mm -hmm. in the last few years, I've become increasingly interested in the cognitive impact of neurologic insult in adults and the contributions, even minor cognitive deficits make in outcomes mm-hmm. so when you look at I mean we think of cognitive deficits when we think of TBI but we almost um, ignore them when we think of stroke unless they're severe mm-hmm. right so you know someone that is um, really having trouble thinking will either end up in um, rehab psychology or in speech and those two things go together. But more recently we're discovering that up to 90% of individuals post-stroke have some changes in cognition and those changes in cognition with some with the paper we're about to put out, uh, have an impact on motor recovery. So I think it's an area that's overlooked and undertreated.
0: So more than just difficulty
1: learning new tasks. Correct. Uh, it's not just apraxia a or the inability to motor plan mm-hmm. or remember or learn. It's the inability to sustain attention. It's the inability to... Um, manipulate objects in working memory at the same capacity that someone else should or an age-matched peer would we were we've been doing this uh, test called the PASET, the paced auditory serial edition test and it's really an interesting test because I say four then I or you hear four then you hear eight you're supposed to say 12 wow. and then you hear five you're supposed to say Seven. 13 because you add it to the eight, not to the number that you have just said. Oh, I just failed. Yeah, you did. But most people, <laughs> I mean, we could let them practice and mm-hmm. a little bit, but people that have had a stroke have an incredibly hard time with that task.
0: Hmm.
1: And it's um, an interference problem probably, it's um, an attention problem, and Much of what we're starting to see is that those kinds of minor problems that you don't really tease out in most evaluations are critical to motor
0: outcome. Hmm. Very interesting. So when did you make the transition from clinical practice into more of a research or teaching-based professional life? So I went to Ohio State in...
1: um, 1981 to be uh, the pediatric therapist at their um, developmental center on campus and while I was there I started teaching uh, as part of a class that uh, taught uh, PT students how to work with children with developmental problems and I fell in love with teaching so my mentor at that time, Marion Chase, uh, said, if I really wanted a career in academia, I should get a doctorate. And at that time, not most faculty did not have doctorates, but most of our peers on faculty had doctorates. And so I said, okay, I'm going to go get a doctorate, and then I'm going to come back and take your job. And she was at an age where that made sense.
0: And she was the director?
1: She was the head of PT for the, this uh, university facility. And, um, and I was a relatively new therapist, right? I'm, this is my fourth year of practice. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so I, I took off to get a, a PhD and i really wanted a phd in neuroscience but at that time there was wasn't a phd in neuroscience and so i entered a program called psychobiology or physiological psychology that went by either name and um, it was really about the biological processes that account for psychological function of which motor planning and motor control of course are part of uh, psychological function. So it made sense. And now that program has, is under the neuroscience program at Ohio State. So it morphed into what I went for in the first place. So um, I was halfway through my PhD when this mentor of mine called and said, they're offering an early retirement And I'm going to take it. And I said, you can't. I'm not finished (laughs) with my doctorate. You must stay. And she she said, I know, I know, I know. And it probably isn't good for you, but it will be good for me. And so uh, she retired. And a dear friend of mine took that job. (laughs) And they changed the job, though it became a non-academic position instead of an academic position. So uh, I finished my doctorate and um, and was trained as a basic scientist over sort of a crazy s- series of situations. And then when I finished my doctorate, I was in a situation where my husband and my, I had two young children. Uh, we were sort of settled in Columbus and not able to move. So I went back into clinical practice for three years and practiced as a clinician and waited for a job to come open at Ohio State. And when it did, I took it or they took me, whichever.
0: So was it in the teaching, the PT program? It was in the PT
1: program. Yeah. So it was different. This other position was affiliated with the PT program, but was a primary, um, clinical position, the one that my mentor had. And so I think in actuality, it worked out perfectly that I took that job at a time that was really good for my family. I couldn't give up clinical practice quite. So the first six years I was a faculty member, I still had a small private practice in pediatrics and, I don't know, a little adult neuro, Uh so that I could, one, make more money, and two, keep my foot in the door.
0: Mm -hmm. So at that time, um, had you started a research career at that point? Was that when you were involved in the Excite trials, for example?
1: So I, as I said, I was trained as a basic scientist, and I started my research career doing pain research and i'm not sure it, it's too long a story to tell how i got there from where i started i went to do my doctorate with someone that was looking at interestingly enough cognition in children with severe motor and language deficits so nonverbal children and i was very excited about the project and the project imploded in the middle of of the process Uh, The equipment wasn't working, my advisor lost interest, the other student uh, decided not to work on it. It just fell apart. And so I thought, "I, I can't take the time to do this all myself. And I was at that point a mother of two small children. I couldn't be a student forever, so I saw some research that was being done it was interesting to me on pain modulation and how to use pain modulating systems to address pain problems and so i did a a rodent based pain modulation study when i took the faculty job my first project that we published in i think 92 was on pain modulation and fibromyalgia and the effects of aerobic activity on inducing pain modulation. And then I decided I should do something I really loved mm-hmm. and I didn't really love what I was doing. And so I started, I had been really fascinated by the two-step, yeah, two-step, compendium. Mm -hmm. I used it to teach, and I thought, I should be doing motor learning work. And so I got a foundation grant to do a motor learning reaching project, and uh, that served to get me into the EXCITE trial, because they selected sites by how much work you had already done in stroke. Sure. And so I... So then that started really my research. 1990, mm, I think I got the grant in 94. That started my work that has now spanned 20-plus years on upper extremity recovery post-stroke.
0: So I think... um There have been increased numbers of studies that at least I'm aware of in which they're using large multi-site research Mm -hmm. uh, to collect data and analyze it and I'm sure there's some challenges associated with that.
1: (laughs) Yes. Uh, Excite had seven sites and uh, getting seven Bright, independent researchers to all agree mm-hmm. on how to do something is a challenge. And we had pre-planning meetings that spanned, let's see, we collected pilot data for Excite in 2007? 2000, no, wait, in 1997, we collected the pilot data. We wrote a grant, the grant was turned down, we rewrote the grant, we did, we were funded from 2000 to 2006, that last year was um, a no cost extension. We were all in alabama uh, birmingham alabama in the summer of 2000 i guess training everyone on how to do everything we had had several meetings prior to that so it was really a consensus process and not everyone was happy as we implemented it was also many emails many conference calls uh people traveling around to make sure that people were doing things the exact same way there were some misunderstandings and some heated discussions Uh, so it is is a challenge to get it all Mm -hmm. together and that taught me a lot about uh, research uh, leadership Uh, collaborative practices, both good and bad.
0: What to avoid and what to do. Correct. Have you brought any of that forward to your leadership role in this section? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it is consensus before trying to make a
1: decision. You know, you should not have something come to a vote where you haven't had all the discussion ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And... And really it also taught me to really listen and to understand that even though the point of view might be different than mine, I really had to understand the point of
0: view. That's a great leadership skill. Mm-hmm. So there were some pretty big names involved in the EXCITE trial. Yeah. I mean, I'm from Atlanta, so Steve Wolf comes to mind. I know Carolee Winstein was in it and, and, and yeah. many others. So I want some scoop. <laughs> so I know Steve is a pretty straightforward, forward, you know, moving kind of guy. But uh, any fun stories about any of the um, interactions with your fellow Excite members? Oh sure. Um, well, Carolie is a
1: vodka connoisseur. Oh. In particularly, uh, vodka martinis. <laughs> <laughs> and uh she taught us all to drink vodka martinis and to differentiate tried to get us to differentiate different kinds of vodka mm. so that i'm not quite sure I, I i i don't i don't i still don't really like vodka martinis and mm-hmm. and i'm not sure i dis- i can distinguish really cheap vodka from good vodka but when you get to the upper levels they all sort of taste the same to me
0: so it's a little different type of research. on was, yes, uh-huh. yes.
1: and there, are, uh, there was a delightful martini bar in down, downtown Birmingham, just so you know.
0: If, okay. If oh. you ever go. Okay, all right. <laughs> so I, I understand your current research is on neural reorganization. Mm-hmm. So what are you working on now?
1: Well, I sort of alluded to that. Um,
0: the cognitive. We have
1: a project that's looking at the non-motor influences on motor recovery. That's right. Um, So uh, both sensory dysfunction and uh, cognitive dysfunction. And so we're trying to, you know, we... I'm really fascinated by sort of the responder-non-responder differences and... um, We tend to look in most clinical trials at the group effect, right? Mm -hmm. It's really nice when the group effect is robust and we can say, this works. But in every kind of treatment, we have a lot of variability in the outcome of the treatment. And as PTs, what we focus on is what we can see, the motor dysfunction or deficit. And I have become intrigued with what else contributes to that deficit. And so I'm right now targeting sensory and cognitive changes, both of which are underdiagnosed and undertreated. So most PTs will do sort of a can you feel this? Can you feel mm-hmm. that kind of sensory evaluation? Or maybe if we're really good, we do a sharp dull look. We might look at uh, proprioception a little bit in terms of if is your finger up? Is your finger down? Right. Can you put your arm in the same position I've put your other arm? Those kind of simple tests. But we often don't test. Uh, stereognosis, haptics, our ability to use the hand as an object to gain sensory information. And that is uh, disrupted in almost 80% or sometimes greater of the patients that we look at. Even in
0: a stroke situation on their intact side?
1: It's often bilateral. Hmm.
0: Uh,
1: The more severe the deficit, the more likely it is to be bilateral. And in those same folks, and this is where it gets a little complicated, uh, they often have a cognitive deficit as well, if you do the kinds of testing that we're doing. So part of it is, is this all just a working memory deficit? Because the centers that control working memory are centers connecting the parietal lobe to the frontal lobe. And the centers that are active in our sensory discrimination tasks are the parietal lobe and the frontal lobe, same areas. So it's what we're seeing. And if you think about how we look at haptics or stereognosis, we we give them something in their hand, Mm -hmm. right? And then we ask them to pick out what it is or to find it with their other hand or something. So they have to sort of remember what they felt. And so is that a, an attention, a working memory deficit? Um, so we're looking at the brain areas that seem to be active. Are they the exact same areas? We're also looking at the white matter connections between those brain areas. So the superior longitudinal fasciculus <laughs> remember that Mm -hmm. yeah well now it has three parts and it connects slightly different parietal areas to frontal areas is it differentially damaged in those that have more of a kinesthetic loss versus a working memory loss versus versus, a sensory discrimination loss can we kind of pick that apart so that's where we are right now is looking at white matter projections connecting the parietal and frontal lobes and how that contributes to these non-motor deficits that we see post-stroke. So what are you using
0: to assess that?
1: We're doing diffusion tractography mm-hmm. and um, using probabilistic tractography that allows us to uh, estimate the best projectional um, the way the fibers are projecting for, from very specific areas in the parietal lobe to very specific areas in the frontal lobe. Because if you look at the super longitudinal fasciculus in its entirety, you're probably losing some of the fine points hmm. of what's actually happening.
0: Interesting. And So
1: if you think about where that's going in a In our most, our middle cerebral artery stroke, the cause of hemiparesis, those fibers are are likely to be affected. But since they course through sort of different brain areas, they may not be affected the same way. They may be differentially affected. So Mm -hmm. that's sort of what we're trying
0: to look at. Very neat. I like it. It's keeping me busy. There you go. (laughs) So uh, who persuaded you to run for president of the... Now the uh, Academy of Neurology.
1: (laughs) You know, this was sort of a mistake, I think. (laughs) Um, I, I had not been on a committee for a while. I took over as a director of a school and an associate dean, and I hadn't done much with the section for, I don't know, three years, four years, something like that. And I think Lee Dibble was the nominating. head of the nominating committee. Mm-hmm. And I contacted Lee and I said, you know, I'd like to do something, get back in the section. What, what positions might be open? <laughs> and he said, well, president. And I said, no, 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 Lee. I have not been, i never sat on the board before. Um, I've been committee chair a couple times, but I've never sat on the board. And so let's think a little smaller. And he said, Oh no, you'd be great. And then he got all these people to call me to tell me that I should do that. And, you know, Eddie right? called me. Um, Kathy Sullivan called me. Uh, I forget. There are... Several people, Judy Deutsch called me. I mean, it was sort of complex. And I'm thinking, well, I, I suppose they think I could do it.
0: Um, that was Eddie Field Photag? Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. <laughs> and so I, uh, so I you, decided to run. Yeah.
0: All right. <laughs> um, so let's talk about your leadership. Um, I've, I've got to tell you that a lot of people have been very complimentary about your leadership. Um, style, and that you have a gift at letting people do what they need to do to achieve their goals. So when I went back through and looked at everything the section has accomplished in the past, what is it, seven years now? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. So I'm going to let you pick your favorite first. So what, what thing has the section done that you have... Um, felt really proud of, or thought was a game-changer?
1: Well, I am really proud that we changed our name. Why is that? So no one understands what a section is. When you talk to your colleagues around the country and you say, I'm a member, I'm president of the neuro section, they look at you with a blank look on your face and they say, well, what's a section? When you say, I'm the, I'm the president of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, it rings a common bell with those around the country, especially our medical colleagues, that they are all part of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, or whatever, that they understand the term academy. And so I, I felt like it was an important change for us to make, and to get rid of this confusion that our colleagues had about who we were so I am really glad that we did that and it obviously wasn't my idea it came out of the governance review of the APTA but I felt like we moved it through at a, at a really good pace and with excellent support from the membership so I, I think we did it in the right
0: way very good. Um, what, the first thing I put down was actually holding four step. And I that know that would have been two. <laughs> okay. The the step conferences, I read your um article about your um, the career, influence your yeah. yeah, career and the and the influence the step conferences mm-hmm. had on you as a um, an academic. And I was wondering if you could kinda of give us the short version of that.
1: Oh sure. Um I was uh, a child during First Step, but I know that my academic program was very much influenced by the neurophysiological concepts of the First Step Conference. And I think there's probably not a practicing PT that wasn't, their education didn't change as a result of that First Step Conference. I missed the two-step conference by about two years in terms of being an academic, Mm -hmm. but I lived by that compendium. I mean, that just opened my mind. I had studied motor learning and motor control as part of my doctorate, and I was already very much interested in those principles as they applied to neurologic conditions. But Two-Step really, really pushed that forward. And so I taught from that. I developed an entire class based on that compendium. I started my, I mean, it really changed my research career where when I thought about what I really should be doing in, in relation to the profession, I thought we have got to understand how motor learning and motor control principles should influence recovery and so uh, I just two-step had such an impact three-step for me if you take one term from three-step was neuroplasticity how do we look at the brain and know how it's changing in relation to what we're doing and I I we wrote our first um, paper on imaging in fMRI in um, 2002, so before three-step. But it was first a confirmation that we were on the right track. And three or secondly, it showed me that what other people we're already doing. And I felt like this push to just move forward, to, to figure out those other things. And then, so with the EXCITE trial, we had a second multicenter trial between Wake Forest and Ohio State and Emory. And that was uh, an imaging uh, and TMS trial. And the imaging didn't come out very well, but the TMS showed that we were really changing the motor map. So if you're changing the motor map, you know, wh- what are the principles related to doing that? So that's that's fostered a lot of what I've done in the last decade. Four-step, I I had a blast, just a blast, uh, planning it even amongst the chaos. It was
0: just a wonderful group of people to work with. Well, you were at your home home uh, university, yeah. the Ohio State University. Well, I
1: want, I want to go on record as they applied to be the site without my input okay so i was i was leery of being the president and being the site because Mm -hmm. i didn't want it to be perceived as um instigated by me but they the i don't run the pt program i actually run the school in which the pt program resides and the leadership of that program john buford and his neuro faculty wanted to put forward an application to be the site and i have to agree i think ohio state's a beautiful campus and it was a great place to hold it but they did that i recused myself from the decision making so that Mm -hmm. if it was picked as a site it wasn't picked because i had any input now once it was picked i was happy to contribute to making it a good experience for everyone but when I say it was a wonderful group of people, the planning committee really worked years on putting it, pulling it together. But they were a wonderful group to work with. And we had so much fun working together. And everybody, everybody pulled their weight, you know. Mm-hmm. People had different skill sets, and it wouldn't have come off without that group, I think. Uh, putting it together.
0: So, what was the overall takeaway from Four Step?
1: Well, you know, it focused on four Ps prevention, plasticity, prediction, and participation. And I think the takeaway is that we needed a fifth P, and that fifth P is personalized. I think the next decade of research is going to focus. On the individual characteristics that contribute to functional outcomes, so whether that's epigenetics, your internal and external environment, genetics genetics plays a role, and we don't know what it is. Your own uh, personal situation, right? The social support the spiritual support the family support whatever that looks like the individual disease characteristics one stroke doesn't look like another stroke doesn't look like another stroke the person's goals i told the story of the gentleman who at the end of our treatment still couldn't feel his hand but he could hold his tractor handles and drive his tractor. And that made him incredibly happy. Another person had recovered almost completely their sensory function, but she couldn't, she still couldn't write as, with as pretty uh, as pretty a uh, handwriting as she had had before a stroke, and she was very unhappy with the recovery of her hand. So I think when you look at individuals and their goals, you need to, your treatment needs to target those. And sometimes we try to define the goals for our patients instead of really looking at what they need and what we should be working towards. So I think Uh, the big take-home message for me was personalized.
0: I see a lot of our section, excuse me, our Academy's uh, direction has been in education of different uh, of different forms. Um, I think of the EDGE task force, the clinical um, CPG's... Practice guidelines. Thank you. Clinical practice guidelines, um, the development of the Synapse Education Center, uh, the website, the mentoring program. Uh, I, th- I think all of these um, have really contributed to a, uh, having to view the academy as a force in education for mm-hmm. our physical therapists. So uh, how, did, how did that happen in, in, uh, under your leadership?
1: So I think one of the biggest challenges to us as a profession is the variability in practice between one clinician and another. And I've seen this most through my aging parents and their experiences with PT, and it's been shocking to me, both in um, sort of the inexperience in the simplistic way some people practice and then the excellence in the way some people practice and we should not have that variability and I I have seen it both through people that have long time have been practicing a long time and in new grads so our entry level education is not the same even and we can see that in our board scores and those kinds of things but it's not the same but it's also once you're in practice when i look at the change in practice over this is my 40th year as a pt it it's phenomenal you know what has happened to practice and you have to keep up you have to read and not everybody is doing that not everybody gets the journal, not everybody's a member, not everybody's really... I mean, how many scientific papers does an individual clinician read? As an academic, that's my job, to read them. But at the same time, it's, it should be everybody's job. I think as the neuro, neuro Academy, we feel like it's our job to help with that. And we've tried to do it in as many ways as we can. To target a broad audience, we take the cor- We have regional courses that go mm-hmm. around the country. The learning management system, the Synapse. The reason that, that is to provide continuing ed, both free and at cost, uh, to those that are in the in the trenches practicing because. Companies aren't paying for clinicians to travel these days. It's costly to come to meetings, so one of the things in doing it ourselves, we could decide to put some things as free, and some things as uh, for charge. And um, we didn't go with another option because they were not. There wouldn't be any opportunity to do it. Some of those. For free. In fact, one of the first modules up there is wheelchair assessment and um, finding the right wheelchair for uh, your particular client. And it's something that, you know, you might never have done it for years, and now you're in a new job, and that's, that's the job. And so it's a nice refresher. It's good for students because I think it's in more detail than many programs might offer. So I think we see it as our job to as best we can minimize the variability in practice and help our clinicians keep up with best practice and evidence-based practice as best we can and i mean it's been great to be the president but um these Activities and accomplishments have been done by just a breadth of wonderful people who it's their passion. They put more hours in than I think anybody could realize that they're doing. And uh, they're an inspiration, really, to watch. And sometimes I always felt like, what else can I do? Because they were getting it all done. And so I could sit back and say, rah rah, but you know, they just took off.
0: Well, I heard you described as the captain of a very large ship. (laughs) And you're simply guiding them down the river.
1: (laughs) Well, it's been fun. I've learned a ton. Uh, It's been great to get to know so many more people and to work with people that I have now called dear friends. And um, I, I greatly appreciate the experience.
0: So your term ends in June. It does, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, your, your president-elect will take over. So what are you going to do with all your extra time?
1: <laughs> well, I have, I have given that some thought. Um, I volunteered to be on an APTA committee. We'll see if that happens. I volunteered to be part of a group that's um, the first council, uh, the Frontiers in Research No, the Frontiers in Rehabilitation Science and Technology. So they're trying to push uh, critical research in areas of tele-rehab, genomics, regenerative medicine, and technology, sensing and robotics. And uh, so I volunteered to be part of that group. I'm considering uh, maybe running for a national role. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think for a moment I'll pause. <laughs> I mean, I'm doing, already doing a couple things, but I'm not going to jump too
0: quick. Well, I hear you have some grandchildren that you could I uh, do, <laughs> that you could spend some more time with.
1: I do I have four beautiful grandchildren. The oldest of which turned 4 in November, so oh, they're my all goodness. We have 3 turning 4. So one in November, one just turned last week and one in April. And then I have a grandson that will be 2 in May. And they are the absolute joy of my life. And so I keep telling people grandchildren are all the joy and none of the work. Mhm or at least only the work that you want to do, which I do a lot of babysitting and I'm thrilled to do that and um, have taken days off work to stay home with sick kids just because their parents have no more sick time. But at the same time, uh, I'm I'm not quite ready to be done with my career, but Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'll keep at the same pace forever.
0: So, finally, what do you see the next big change in physical therapy? Well,
1: I could say, say what I'd like to see is the next big change in physical therapy. And I talked to some other people um, about this. I think we need to um, be much more involved in primary care. and. You know, we have fought being employed by physicians in, a, in pop situations, and I totally agree with that. But I do believe we could be partners. And that when a patient calls an office and they say, I'm having this problem, I'm dizzy, for example, Why are they going to their GP for, I mean, maybe they need to go to that medical doctor to make sure they don't have an inner ear infection. Maybe. My guess is they could go to a PA or a nurse practitioner for that part of the evaluation, but why aren't they also seeing a PT at the same time? Why is it always a two or three step process? And we are equipped for many conditions to be the primary care specialist and not to be a referral. And we need to figure out how to be part of the primary care environment. So I, I had hoped I would see more of that as we went to the DPT, and maybe we've seen a little bit, but not nearly what we thought. And I think we have to look especially as we're changing healthcare, we have to look at how the BT becomes part of primary care. And then for our patients that are living with chronic neurologic conditions, it should make as much sense for them to see their PT on an annual or quarterly basis when they have a diagnosis of Parkinson's or post-stroke, or TBI, or cerebral palsy, Mm -hmm. that we should be part of that ongoing healthcare and begin to manage this secondary problems of these conditions. And then again, I think that as I'm talking about primary care, I'm also talking about a much larger role in prevention both the prevention of conditions, neurologic conditions, and prevention of secondary consequences. And some of the nice things that came out in 4-step are, what happens when, if you do exercise in patients that are diagnosed with Parkinson's but have minimal physical deficits? And the reality is you can change the course, I think you can change the course of the disease if you do it early and not wait until they really need you. And I think that's where we need to, that that prevention part we need to jump into. Because there are other health practitioners that if we don't do it, they will do it and they won't do it as well.
0: Well, I truly thank you for meeting with me today.